Welcome back to another week of Latter-day Conversations. If one of you're one of our avid fans who's listening every week, you may have noticed a interim in our uh, episodes uh, coming out. Sorry about that. It's just late summer and all of the plans get jam-packed into the end of summer, as many of you know. So um, such is the case with us, and so we put off a few weeks, so sorry about that. But we've got the band back together, <laughs> as the boy bands like to say. Um, <laughs> And we'll start off with our first question to Cade. We don't remember who started last time. We try to alternate. So if we throw off the groove, we apologize again. We're just uh, sincerely sorry for <laughs> being late and thrown off the groove. But anyway, we hope to make it up to you with our answers. So ready for this, Cade? Ready to redeem us? Let's rock and roll. A little less <laughs> boy band style, but let's do it. <laughs> uh, what does it mean to be elect in the scriptures? And why are some elect and others not? All right. Uh, what does it mean to be elect? That is a very good question. Let's see here. I would say, first and foremost, being elect is the same thing as being chosen. To elect is to choose. So in the scriptures, when you, when, when you read and it talks about how you know many are called, but few are chosen, uh, it's similarly speaking about the elect. Um, I believe in Doctrine and Covenants 121, if I remember right, um, right before it kind of talks about how those who hold priesthood are to exercise it, you know, with uh, kindness and meekness and all those things. But it also talks about how those who do not keep with their calling and those who do not magnify it um, are those who are not chosen. Right. And it says, I, I believe the exact quotation is, hence why many are called and few are chosen. Um, but I don't know. I, I think that these elect people, uh, especially brethren of the priesthood, they are members of the church who keep the gospel. They keep their covenants. They obey what God commands them to do, and they enjoy uh, the blessings that are associated with it. So that's okay. the, just a quick little brief start. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with you as I was kind of looking into this and double checking my, my understanding of it. Um, that's what I was generally gathering. I think using the synonym is the best way to put it. They're the chosen people of God, if you're elect. But um, here's a question that may um, get really to the heart of this is, can someone be elect before they show forth good works in this life? Um, or in other words, are they chosen because of their good works or are they demonstrating good works because they are chosen and rightfully so chosen, you know? Um, so this is an interesting spin on it because some people are, are called elect before they are even, um, I don't know, maybe before they are even believers. Is that the case? I, I don't know for sure if that is. I know Emma was called an elect lady mm -hmm. and there's an elect lady referred to by John as well, you know, his letter, or was it Paul? Letter to the elect lady. Uh, and whoever she is, she had righteous children, whatever that was about. Um, and there have been, you know, the scriptures referencing that in the last days, you know, Satan may deceive the very elect, you know. So I don't know. That's a, that's a question that may help us to get more to the meat of this, Cade. What do you think uh, about that? Can the elect, are they elect before they are righteous or are they righteous after they're elect? And that's, that's why they're so, elect. So I think everyone... I, as I would go to a scriptural way of saying it, everyone is called. Every single person, as I think it's Acts that says, you know, that everyone, every nation that feareth God and works righteousness is accepted of, of him. 
that's probably not the exact quotation, but that's probably pretty dang close to what it says. Um, and and I think that that's that's a real thing that God really does respect those who work righteousness, especially according to the light knowledge that they have. Right, like you're talking about, there's tons of Gentile nations and and pagan worshippers and and everything in between. Right, uh, all the way up to those who worship who are Pastafarian, you know, worship the spaghetti God with meatballs in heaven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but in in a genuine sense, those who are are real and honest and humble are the ones that will work out righteousness before God. And they are called um, when they uh, receive the gospel and those who receive the gospel, the true gospel, right? And not just, not just hearing of Christ himself necessarily, but hearing of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ and accepting that and working righteousness in that will then progress to become chosen. Um, I think, let, let me double check, but I believe in DNC 84, it even talks about um, those who are elect as well. Let me pull that up real quick. I don't know if you have any yeah. thoughts. Nope. We'll just wait here in silence. Just kidding. Hear, hear, hear the crickets in the field. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll we'll get in after this question. We're going to get into predestination and stuff too. So I think um, I would ask more about that, but I think mm. I'll wait until the next question. But uh, okay. So I got yeah. I got it I got it pulled up here a little bit. Um, so here it says in DNC eighty four thirty three it says for whoso is faithful in obtaining these two priesthoods of which I have spoken and the magnifying of their calling are sanctified by the spirit unto the renewing of their bodies. They become sons of Moses and of Aaron and the seed of Abraham and the church of the kingdom and the elect of God. So, so they least, become elect because they're righteous. Correct. Right. So it's something that happens after. And that's why, as the scriptures say, there are many called, but few are chosen or few are elect. Okay. So um, what about in DNC 25 when God is... Uh, revealing through Joseph Smith to Emma, he says, behold, thy sins are forgiven thee. Thou art an elect lady whom I have called. You think it's the same case that she's elect because she's demonstrated righteousness? Or do you think there's any case where they're elect before they're righteous? Or demonstrate well, that? I'll, I'll answer this and this will, this will touch a little bit into foreordination, I think. But uh, the reality is um, even those who were foreordained to, to certain callings, and maybe we can just walk back and forth a little bit, um, th those who are foreordained to, to great callings, those who are called, like you say, uh, as Emma was, an elect lady, um, they they worked righteousness at some point of time, whether it's in this life or in the preexistence. Even Jesus Christ was who he was because he did what he did, not not because God just pointed a magic finger and was like, oh, let's just pick some random guy that can go down and, and you know, perform the sacrifice necessary. And keep the law to the degree of perfection that they need to keep in order to do that sacrifice. Um, and so, so go, going back to like your Emma example, yes, she was an elect lady, and I think it was because um, of the good works that she did, whether in this life or in the life that came before. Okay, yeah, that was kind of my understanding too. I did see one scripture, and I just found it again that made me think that maybe, uh, maybe it's the case that um, some people are actually elect due specifically to what they did in pre-mortality um, and not because of anything they had done yet in this uh, life. And the scriptures, uh, Doctrine and Covenants 29.7, and it says, You're called to bring to pass the gathering of mine elect, for mine elect hear my voice and hearken not their hearts. So it made me think like, this is gathering, this is missionary work. I'm assuming, you know, it's gathering those who are not yet members of the church or believers per se, 
but they will receive the gospel when they hear it. And they're ready and they're chosen, but they just haven't received it yet. So I, I don't think they're elect because of the demonstrative merits of their life so far, but probably more so because of pre-mortality. And this isn't a super strong case. This is just one take on that scripture that could be. Uh, you know, and, and that's that's an interesting take. And I know Joseph Smith even kind of mentions it briefly where he kind of says that there are some children, not all children, who die in their infancy, um, that die in their infancy because they essentially were so righteous in the previous life, so innocent, so pure, um, that, that the, the only thing that they needed to do to check that box off was to obtain a body before uh, they inherit celestial thrones, essentially. Mm. And so I think, yeah, to, yeah, to some degree, that that's a that's a fair doctrine to 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 teach that um, election is due to righteousness, whether in this life or in the life that came before. Okay, cool, cool. All right, yeah, I think that that answers that question pretty well. I'm I'm satisfied with it. Okay, awesome. Well, let's continue kind of down the same path, I guess. That's a really good intro, I guess. And the question for you, Mike, is this. For ordination versus predestination, what is the difference and what do we believe? Okay, yeah, that dovetails nicely. Or, I don't know, I feel like the first question was an appendage to this more general topic. So maybe we went reverse, like this is the dove and that was the tail. So, whoops. <laughs> okay, for ordination, um, from what I understand, uh, let's separate these two. I'll talk about for ordination first real fast. I believe that's uh, basically just being called to a specific purpose um, in mortality based on a pre-mortal um, situation. You know, like something in pre-mortality, whatever happened, you were ordained unto a certain cause, whether you were supposed to be given a certain calling or, you know, like Mary was foreordained to be the mother of Jesus or um maybe even Emma, the wife of Joseph and Joseph for his calling and Joseph of Egypt and all of the righteous uh, prophets were probably foreordained under their calling. Isaiah was, I believe. Um, so that's what I think foreordination means. And it doesn't um, pertain exclusively to like priesthood ordinations, as I understand it, because it, it applies to men and women. It's just being ordained unto a calling rather than ordained unto a priesthood and given keys and such. Um, that's my understanding of that. Um, and then predestination is usually used in a context of Calvinism. So if you guys aren't familiar with that, basically in like the 1600s, there was a lot of Reformation, Protestant Reformation in the uh, church with Catholicism and Christian Christianity. There was Martin Luther and there was another guy named John Calvin. And um, he reformed a lot of doctrines. And in fact, he took a somewhat unique stance in interpreting the Bible and pretty much thinking that well, there are lots of like pillars and um, descriptions of his beliefs. But basically in, in regard to predestination, he believed that God predestined some to salvation and others to damnation. He chose who he, whom he would, and you can't resist his uh, salvation when it's offered. You know, if he says that person's going to be saved, they're going to be a righteous person and they can't resist it. They can't fall from that grace. And, um, that understanding we do not believe in in our church. We believe it um, more in the free will line that our, uh, how do you pronounce it? Arminianism. Is that how you say it? Cade? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. I always, I always say like the country, like Arminian, 
I think it's like Arminianism or something. <laughs> anyway, for anyone who, who knows uh, more about that or less about it than me, um, that's pretty much the alternative view, the more traditional uh, Christian view, as opposed to Calvinism, which suggests more of these like predestination type roles. So anyway, I've said enough there. Um, we can delve into more, but I want to let you talk, Cade. So what's your take on that? Yeah, actually, it's kind of funny. I've, I, I'm glad uh, you actually answered this first, because in reading through Joseph Smith's uh, teachings this week, I found he, he literally just talks about this exact topic. Um, but I'll, I'll just read a little bit of kind of what he talks about. But he he says, uh, talking about um, Presbyterians and Methodists, he, he how they're always arguing about grace, right? Where he says they are, they are both wrong. They, uh, truth takes a, a road between them. For while the Presbyterian, the Calvinists say, once in grace you cannot fall, the Methodist or the Arminian says that you can have grace today and fall from it tomorrow. The next day you can have grace again and so on, changing continually. Uh, but the doctrine of the scriptures and the spirit of Elijah, the sealing power, the power by which people are sealed to eternal life, would show them to both be false uh, and take a road between them both. right? And, and then he goes on basically to, to say that um, while you aren't falling from grace, so constantly that every second you don't know where you stand before God. There's also not that predestined uh, determination that regardless of what works you do, regardless of what things you say or who you become, that you can or cannot be saved based off those merits whatsoever, um, according to the grace of Jesus Christ, of course. Mm, okay. So he has taken the stance though, that like, we don't believe you're predestined to salvation or damnation. Right, right. So he, he basically says, um, while one road is, is saying, hey, you know, you are predestined completely and nothing you can do can change that. That is false. And while the other road says, well, you can change every two seconds, he says that's also false. Um, and so kind, kind of the way that I see it, that he goes about uh, explaining grace um, and, and explaining this predestination or foreordination as, as we believe it, um, is that there are still our conditions, even to those who have, who, who are elect, right. Those who make their election sure, um, they still can fall from that. Um, if they, you know, uh, commit that unpardonable sin is essentially how he puts it. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, some of this may be owing to growing up in the church and being taught this, but that, that feels natural. Um, when I hear some of the Calvinistic doctrines, it, it feels unnatural and like something's wrong about it. You know, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't have any free will anymore. Like what the heck, uh, you know, God just reaches out to some and arbitrarily chooses some and not others. And I know there's more to it. If any Calvinists are listening by a slim chance, that's probably not happening. Um, they're probably like, Hey, you know, you're not, you're not representing my case very strongly. I know there are <laughs> scriptures, you know, in the Bible when, when they talk about like God saving people through the atonement, a lot of times, or maybe most times, he says he'll save his sheep, he'll save his people. He doesn't say he'll save the whole world, which makes them think, oh, he's only saving a select portion or something like that. So anyway, Calvinists will get deep nitty gritty into the scriptures and back their case. But I think if you take in the totality of scripture and, of course, take into account the modern revelation we have in the Book of Mormon, which really clarifies it, um, you see that it is the case that, like you said, Cade, you can fall from grace. And also you can resist the hand of God when he reaches out to you. If he wants to offer you salvation, um, you, you know, you can resist it and become a son of perdition. Um, but in the same sense, when I was listening to a podcast about this today, I was thinking, you know, we kind of disagree with both of them because 
on one hand, we agree that like, yeah, everyone's actually going to be saved. Like Jesus is actually going to save the whole world. Like love it, the whole world. He laid down his whole life for the, or his life for the whole world. Everyone will be saved, but what happens after that? Will you suffer a second death because of your rejection of the atonement or, uh, you know, will you be a son of perdition or will you get a lesser exaltation or something like that? Yeah, that was, I mean, excellently put. And, and, and that's one of the things that I, I find, I mean, not, not, not to roast too much on the, on the Calvinists, but it always bothered me that this idea that everyone is saved in an unconditional manner to a point where essentially the whole scriptures, in my opinion, would be completely void, right? I mean, if, if essentially the scriptures are made up of commandments and, and stories and examples to follow, but if it doesn't matter one way or another what you do, then what's the whole point of any of it? You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. It kind of bothers the mind. I think maybe what they would say is that, well, um, it does matter. Like you, you have to try, but um, if you end up being righteous, it's because God had predestined you to be so. And if you end up being wicked, it's because God had predestined you to be so. And maybe we could um, throw ourselves in this same um, struggle of wrestling through this mentally by asking ourselves the question of, does God already know who's going to be saved and not? Because he is omniscient, right? So, Cade, does he mm-hmm. know if you're going to be saved already? Yes. yes, yes. <laughs> so that's kind of this, in a way, it feels like predestination, right? But it's right. it's not because we, we still have our agency and our will, but God already knows it. Right. That while, while he knows exactly everything that's going to happen from here on to all eternity, um, we don't necessarily know what he knows, which does not, you know, basically, uh, as you just said, withdraw our agency from us. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if that's where they're coming from, where it's pretty much like omniscience is equated with predestination. You know, it's like, yeah, he knows you're going to be saved um, and he predestined you to be such. But I mean, we just wouldn't say that in our religion, <laughs> right? Like we, we have the pre-mortality and we have a, I don't know, it's almost like a non-issue for us. I think with other Christians who are stumbling because they only have the Bible and um through the Bible alone, you cannot come to a consensus by even the best, most rigorous logic. You have the smartest two people, you know, that are um, biblical scholars and everything, and they disagree on very crucial points. And this, I mean, it just throws in the, the point that you really, you need the modern day revelation and the Book of Mormon helps to clarify so much. So we're, we're very much blessed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I, I don't know, I think that that's, I, I did speak with a fair number of people who had this belief on my mission, and and it is that omniscience, it is that uh, forward knowledge um, that kind of confuses things for them, and lack of um, material to go through and actually understand what everything is. And I think that in even in our church, even amongst the generality of the members of the church, there is some degree of, I don't know, maybe almost going too far the other way, where you're falling from grace every two seconds to a point where essentially there is no grace where all we talk about is works and there is no salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I think there is a balance for sure. I think if anyone's saying you don't have to do anything, you're going to be saved or one way or the other, God already determined it. Like if someone's telling you, you don't have to be, you know, put your heart into it and try to be a good person. They're steering you away. But also if they tell you, even no matter how hard you try, you can't be a good person. Like, I mean, in one sense, I mean, God has intervened so that we can. 
Um, so yeah, I think you, you do got to find the balance, but they've, I mean, the gospel elaborates this so well. We, I, we just don't get it. I think, cause you're right, Cade, you went on to Louisiana on your mission. I went to Texas. And so we see this, that Calvinism is actually a very popular, um, theological, um, train to be on. <laughs> like a lot of people <laughs> believe this. And when you hear it, you know, some people are like, Oh, no one believes that, but a lot of like reformed Baptists and a lot of, uh, sects within Protestantism do believe this. Yeah. Yeah, and a little bit of foreshadowing, I will suggest that it is the doctrine of the devil. All right, you guys hear that? <laughs> I, I think, yes, to the extent where, where you're um, absolving someone of their moral duty, it is the doctrine of the devil. It's saying you can do whatever you want, and you're going to be saved, or you're not going to be saved. It's not up to you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would suggest it sounds a bit familiar from a time before we were on this earth. Which we will get into in the last question. Man, we're just tying this together so well. Listeners, we, we have put this together so well. You're, you're going to have a treat this episode. Um, well, Kay, do you want to get into the next question? Yeah. going to stick in this. Uh, yeah, send it. Pre-mortality stuff. Okay. Um, what does preparatory redemption mean? in Alma 13.3. And uh, I don't know if you want to give any context or anything. I'll, I'll just let you take it away, however you want to address it. All right. Well, let me get it pulled up real quick. I have actually not spent my due diligence in looking this up. So let me pull this up real quick and read it so that we can get the context. So I'll okay. read just... Uh, this is in Alma chapter 13. Yeah. And this will be verses 1 through 3. I'll just give the background for it. So... Uh, here it says, and again, my brethren, I would cite your minds forward to the time when the Lord God gave these commandments unto the children, unto his children. And I would that ye should remember that the Lord God ordained priests after his holy order, which was after the order of his son to teach these things unto the people. And those priests were ordained after the order of his son in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. Uh, and this manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God on account of their exceeding faith and good works. So, um, in the first place, being left to choose good or evil, therefore they having chosen good and exercising exceeding great faith are called with a holy calling. Yea, with that holy calling which was prepared with and according to a preparatory redemption for such. And so the question is, what does that preparatory redemption mean? And that is a good question. Honestly, just looking at this right now, I do not know. Um, I might have to reread this a little bit. But do you have any thoughts on this, Mike? Yeah, yeah. I'll ramble a little and give a little more context and give my thoughts and uh, see what you think. All right. Um, yeah, this, I mean, this has got all the keywords, right? Foreknowledge of God, preparatory redemption. Like, okay, we're, we're right on track with this stuff we've been talking about. Um, but yeah, Alma and Amulek go to Ammonihah and they preach to the people. And, uh, you know, at first Alma's talking and they're like, whoa, we're supposed to believe you. You're only one guy. And then Amulek gets up and they're like, oh, okay. He's got a, He's got a, someone to second his words. And uh, Amulek starts teaching them. And then Alma gets up after Amulek and starts teaching more about the, um, the redemption through Christ. And he's basically saying like in the first place, you know, in the garden, Adam and Eve, provoked God into wrath, or or maybe he's referring actually to um, the children of, uh, with Moses. I don't know if, what is the day of the first provocation unto God's wrath? 
was that in the garden or was that with Moses's people when they rejected his commandments and provoked him to wrath? Uh, I believe it was with Moses. Okay. So when he says, don't provoke him again um, to a second provocation, um, he's saying, you know, now we've got these commandments and keep them so you can be redeemed. And he's just telling like how God has been merciful throughout the whole existence of humanity. How he said, you know, God's always sent angels to converse with men, to give them commandments and bring them back to him. And he's sent uh, righteous men that have been ordained after the order of Christ, um, after his holy order, so that they can look forward to Christ for redemption. And then he says, those people who were ordained after the order of Christ, so I'm guessing like prophets and you know Levitical priesthood, whatever roles they are, um, priests, elders, um, they were ordained and prepared, it says, from the foundation of the world. So in the preexistence, they were called to these callings, foreordained to them, based on God's foreknowledge, which this is weird because it's like, wait a minute, did God foresee their righteous merit- meritable actions on earth and then um, kind of predestine them to that or, you know, ordain them to that, that calling of priesthood? Um, and, you know, if they didn't follow that out, if they weren't righteous, then was God's foreknowledge flawed? And then it gets, it gets hairy. It's like, what? And so anyway, and these, these righteous priests who were um, ordained to this in the preexistence, they were also given a preparatory redemption, which I don't know if this is like a retroactive um, facet of the atonement, which kind of cleansed them of their sins before the atonement even happened, like in pre-mortal existence, or if I'm thinking too like critically on this, I, I don't know for sure what it means. So th- those are my thoughts now. Okay. What, what do you think about it now? Okay. So I will, I'll give a few brief highlights actually. Um, and I will not back up any of this as of right now, but um, I actually had, I had an Institute teacher that taught a <clears throat> taught the doctrine of Christ's atonement and sacrifice and grace being given to those who sin in preexistence. And I believe this actually might've been the scripture that he used to back that up. Um, which, I mean, logic kind of sends it a little bit down that same path and avenue a little bit, right? I mean, we know that Satan fell and committed an unpardonable sin. So to some degree, there was sin in the pre-existence, and we did have agency there as well to choose, correct? Um, but but getting back to kind of the, these callings and this foreordination and this foreknowledge that God has, I think it's important to re- to recognize that while, while there is um, this almost... <laughs> worrisome where, where you look at you're like well can god foreordain some man like let, let's say that the let's say there was a guy who was supposed to do what enoch did but he didn't do it and god foreordained him to that calling anyway so now he's going to hell because he didn't fulfill his calling right um <laughs> and god knew that before so is, is god essentially damning that person and i think what it gets down to is the the simple fact that first and foremost god is has can completed the plan in such a way that he can save as many of his children as he possibly can. Um, And a lot of that has to do with knowledge of what he knows, of who he knows that we are and what we have done in the preexistence before he foreordained us to what we are doing in this life. Right. Um, And that's to go down that same path that there are people who have been called and who have rejected that calling and those who have even become elect and rejected that election. Um, through actions of their own. Now, I, I think a lot of it, the, the difference between this and, and Calvinism would be that even though God knows this, we don't. 
that we still have a unbiased opinion that there has been a veil placed upon us so that our actions are based off of our actions. And surely, yes, this life is not equal and God knows that and we will be judged accordingly. But we have been placed here because of his foreknowledge, because of our our pre-existent works and possibly as this uh, scripture even mentions uh, as what God knows we can and should do, which is essentially the entire purpose of foreordaining someone to do something because you know they can accomplish it. Um, and then two, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with the, the preparatory redemption to a point. Um, it might even be hinting at just the simple fact that the entire gospel really is a gospel of preparatory redemption. That, I mean, up, up until the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no one had been resurrected on this earth. That, that we always are looking forward towards Christ in the future. We always are looking towards this this redemption and as of right now are working out a ministry of, of as you would call preparatory redemption yeah okay yeah that's interesting um one scripture to tie into this is when nephi's having his vision um and he sees christ's ministry and uh, such and he sees the mist of darkness and the tree of life and stuff like that um there's a point when the angel uh spake, speaks to him and he says behold the 12 disciples of the lamb who are chosen to minister unto thy seed and um, he says, they shall judge the 12 tribes of Israel, etc. And he says, and these 12 ministers whom thou beholdest shall judge thy seed. And behold, they are righteous forever because of their faith in the Lamb of God. Their garments are made white in his blood. Um, I thought that was interesting that it says righteous forever. Like they are righteous forever. I don't, this is only a kind of weak tie, but I think maybe you could take the um, preparatory excuse me, <clears throat> preparatory redemption to this, where even in pre-mortality, they were kind of cleansed to some degree and prepared for their callings. Um, and they are righteous forever. I don't know. And that's, and I'm wondering how that works out with Judas Iscariot, but <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh, I think I, I don't know the answer to the Alma 13, three, one for sure. But uh, I, I think our thoughts are about as far as I have speculated and wondered on it. Yeah, I'll actually, I'll, I'll spend some time and try to study this. And if I get anything else, I'll try to add it in the future uh, lesson we do in this podcast. Okay, cool. All right. So we didn't really, I think we just exposed that one. Sometimes that's about all you can do with what we have known. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. There's, there's a time and a way and a place that sometimes things work together. And sometimes all you can do is continue to study until you figure it out, until God reveals it to you. Mm -hmm. um all right well let's move on to this last and final one let's uh get back to that satanic gospel doctrine that is preached somewhere on this earth <laughs> all right <laughs> I'll, I'll send this over to you michael um the the question is this some members assert that satan's rebellious plan was to force people to do good where are people getting this and is it true okay um it is not true that's i i think i mean i i can't be super dogmatic here but based on everything i've read and studied i haven't come across anything to corroborate it but it seems problematic to me um i don't know where people are getting this if someone knows enlighten me but uh it seems to be some speculative elaboration of just the the like one or two verses we have about the rebellion and the pre-existence i mean basically we we really only have in Moses where it says that Satan sought to destroy the agency of man. I think that's what it says verbatim. And so people have just kind of speculated on this and said, oh, he sought 
he was going to destroy their agency. How was he going to do that? Well, he wanted to save everyone still. He said, oh yeah, choose me. I'll save everyone. Um, but the flaw was that he would destroy everyone's agency. So I think people put two and two together. They're like, how can he save people while destroying their agency? I guess he'll just force everyone to do good. <laughs> um, so I guess I can see the logic, but that's ridiculous. I mean, I, it kind of makes this scenario that's a little comical where you have like it's some kind of presidential election and the pre premortal existence where Satan's running and Jesus is running and you got your voters and it's kind of a close call. And they're like, Oh, he didn't come through his plan. You know, he didn't win enough votes, whatever. And we'll cast him down. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like silly. It's not like there were two plans. I think really there was the one plan that God proposed and he designated Christ as the, the fitting suitable, um, the lamb who would atone and who would fill that role and Satan interjected, I think for prideful uh, and selfish reasons and inserted a lie saying that, you know, there was a flaw in God's plan or that he had a better way. And if, you know, and he would be the one and somehow it would destroy people's agency. We don't know how I, I doubt it was that he was forcing people to do good. Um, but whatever it was, he wanted to be the top dog, though. He said, you know, make me the, the one in Elohim's place. And we really don't know a lot of details about this. And I think for good reason, you know, we know very little about pre-mortal existence. So why would you expect that God's just going to tell you, like, the main issue that caused great rebellion and a war in heaven? You know, it's like Nephi didn't even want to tell his children about the Jewish customs and culture because he knew that their ways were wickedness. You know, why would God want to tell us about the fine print and details of Satan's rebellion? Not even that we, you know, assuming that we could understand it in our mortal existence. So anyway, that's, those are my first thoughts. I, I think it's kind of ridiculous to think that Satan was really going to try to force everyone to do good. Like that almost seems benevolent. Like, Oh, he, he has good will. He wants us to do good, but that's not the case. So I, I find it problematic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that I mean, that's pretty much what I was going to say to some degree. I love your uh, little campaign speech. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like I think there's a quote from Bednar where he actually says uh, something when you're talking. I'll try to find it. OK, it's something um, like that. But but yeah, I, I think where a lot of people get this from um, is I believe it's Moses four. I could find it, but it basically says that Satan sought to destroy the agency of man. Right. Um, and and I, I think we have gotten to a point where we interpret it to a, a degree that it has not been revealed yet. Um, that realistically, yes, just like you were saying, when we put everything in its proper context and understand the plan, how it is, there is only one plan. It is God, the father's plan adopted through his son, Jesus Christ. It is the same plan by which he became a God. And the only way by which any God ever became a God or ever will become a God. And because of that, when his plan was going forth to all of us, his spirit children, right? We know that it was organized similarly to how the church is organized today, that people were being taught by Adam, by Enoch, by Joseph Smith, and by other foreordained prophets, essentially, um, as the leaders, um, that essentially this gospel was preached, right? And the, the, the problem is, just like you said, when, when Satan comes out with his plan, it was not an, a realistic alternative. It was never a feasible or efficacious plan. There was no power behind it. Satan was rebelling, and he wanted to draw as many people away from God as he possibly could. Um, and all, fr from revealed canonized scripture, at least, 
Um, what we have is essentially one, he sought to destroy men's agency, and two, that like you said previously, he promised to save all people, that he was going to exalt every single person, and that was his plan. And this is why I kind of mentioned a little bit in, in kind of a, I guess, a little bit of a dogmatic stance, but this predestination doctrine is very, very evil. It's, it, it's a doctrine that lulls men into a false carnal security where they essentially believe they have nothing to do or need to do nothing in order to be accepted of God or become like him. Uh, because that doesn't that's not even part of the plan and and so i don't know i think getting back to this whole question um that satan's plan wasn't necessarily to force people to be good but it was to exalt everyone and my assumption is that it would be more along the lines of hey it doesn't matter what you do you'll all save you regardless more than i won't let you choose to do bad um which would not work either so anyway the 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 basis of the point is satan's plan sucks along with him so yeah okay i i like it's also speculation but the idea that more likely is that satan's plan um like yeah almost was like a moral relative relativism where whatever you do um will be accepted and maybe to let in, you know, to alter the laws of justice, uh, which is weird. I mean, why wouldn't it say he sought to destroy the laws of justice rather than he sought to destroy the agency of man or that that was, you know, part of it. So I don't know. There's a lot we don't know here. And I I would add, I don't know if you remember, but a little while ago we talked about agency a little bit and, and, and to my belief, at least there's a few aspects of agency. And in my opinion, it seems like, Satan was trying to withdraw the law portion of that agency. What do you mean? The law portion. Um, so in, in agency, you have to have choice. You have to have um, the ability to choose. So two, oh. two things, right. And, and one of those things along with it is a law that what you choose, there are consequences. And he was going to re- remove, in my opinion, those consequences, which is still a part of agency. Um, but it's not the part that we often think of. Okay, so if you took um, maybe some of the radical thought of today with more morality, where uh, people really do want to um, create a system where, you know, cr- there is no such thing as a criminal. Uh, you know, it's mercy to such an extreme where it's a twisted sort of mercy that totally robs justice, and there is no such thing as a crime. And there's no such thing as a criminal. And of course, it results in chaos and um, dissonance and um, harm. But perhaps Satan was proposing a system where this this kind of attitude um, reigned supreme and there was no way to sin. And thus, in a sense, there was no agency, even though we would we would be free and to do as we would. But Mm -hmm. we wouldn't be doing good or bad. It would just be doing what we do. Correct. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly how I, I would imagine this. And, and a lot of this is I, I, I got bored one day and I just spent a ton of time trying to ponder and read through everything I could on pre-existence. And I even wrote some like historical fiction of it, basically. Oh, <laughs> but, really? <laughs> yeah, but, but, but the reality is this. I, I mean, Satan, he, he's, he's a very crafty businessman, right? Like, like when you talk about Sherem in the scriptures and it talks about how he has a perfect understanding of the language, that's how, that's how Satan is. He's very, very yeah. crafty. You know, and, and and I imagine him, I mean, 
very, very convincing. He got a, a third of the hosts of heaven uh, in the pre-existence to fall with him, you know? And, and I think that it's the same doctrine that's being preached today. And just like you said, that's pretty much what's going on pretty dang close to right now is there's a lot of people that say, hey, there is no such thing as doing bad. It's just who we are, right? That, that, that is no offense to God. Let me be who I am, right? Yes. And, and, there's, and there's no consequence to it. That's literally what Satan's plan is. That's what predestination is to, or, or at least invites, I would suggest. And, yes. and so, so that's why I consider this doctrine or, or the doctrine of predestination to be the doctrine of the devil. Wow. Yeah, that puts a quite a nefarious spin on the uh, attitude of the media, which touts uh, you just unapologetically, authentically be you, um, even if that means that you're a horrible person morally. You know, you're <laughs> killing your babies and you're having affairs and all sorts of things. And you see it in, you know, even Disney, they're rewriting movies to, you know, show the, the side of the villain, that they're just a misunderstood you know, victim, really. And you see it in our laws where, you know, in Canada and stuff and um, some states where they're, they're trying to um, really uh, soften some of the, the criminal charges for some of the convicts. And they're letting people who ought to be, you know, severely punished by the legal system go out free and, and commit more uh, wreak havoc in society. And not to get too political here, but I think there are undertones here that you could... Um, draw back to this idea of moral relativism, which surely um, our church leaders, especially Elder Christofferson, has uh, vehemently spoken against. Moral relativism is Satan's doctrine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll even go another step and, and even say that um, let, let's, hypo let, let, let's do a hypothetical real quick. All right, let's imagine that Satan's plan went through. He, he was chosen of God, which wouldn't have happened, couldn't have happened, but and didn't happen. Um, but let's say he is chosen of God. He puts in effect his plan where he says, I'm going to save everyone, right? And he goes down and he tries to save everyone. The, the simple fact of the matter is it is not possible. That, that to go out and to become a God, an independent being where faith and grace and, and justice and mercy and every good thing is found in you perfectly and independently of any other thing, um, it, it's not feasible. It's impossible to become that kind of a person while you do not obey those kind of laws. Um, because the only reason a God is such is because of his uh, uh, obedience or um, because that he abides that law to which he preaches, essentially. Right? And so, I don't know, I, I think that it's a very dangerous doctrine that we have. Just like you're saying, there, there's a lot of stuff and some undertones that go into a lot of what is happening today. And, wow. the, sad and the sad reality is that if we, if we continue to promulgate these kind of doctrines, these kind of ideas... Um, is it wh whether or not you have an enjoyable life, whether or not you feel like you have some sort of happiness to some degree, the reality is, as scriptures teach, you can eat, drink, and be merry. But if you do, and that is all you care about, and you don't actually abide the law or try to abide the law, that there is a hell, and it's the one that we make for ourselves. We really do sleep in the beds that we make, and that is essentially what hell is. It's the misery that you put yourself in by not becoming who you ought to be. Wow, man, this is, yeah, this is actually surprising me that um, this lens is making more sense of a lot of societal things we're having right now. Pretty crazy because, um, you know, our society in a lot of ways hates certain truths, you know, especially about like identity and um, gender and um, like, you know, these issues, there are certain truths which are abhorred 
and twist them and rewrite them. And the, truly the only way to find salvation is to live in harmony with the true laws of the universe. And I think that's God's doctrine. You know, he's purporting and uh, this morality that abides in truth. And if you live by this and abide by the truth, the laws that God has established, you will live in harmony with the gospel. But if you try to fight against those, you'll kick against the pricks. You're going to, you're going to find that you cannot change truth. There are fundamental truths that are unchangeable. They're immutable. And, uh, you know, as we see in our society, they hate those certain truths and they want to change them and rewrite them. And maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's it. Um, one thing to kind of top this off, I did find the elder Bednar quote, and it's pretty good um, in lieu of what we're talking about. He says, please remember that Lucifer did not present a plan that was subsequently, uh, that subsequently, subsequently was voted down by a majority of the participants in the premortal council. He was not a sympathetic character who lost a close election. He was a malcontent who rebelled. Selfishness, pride, and arrogance motivated his revolt against the Father's plan. Mm, I love that. Well, yeah. And so I, I think the, the reality of, of the gospel is that whether or not um, we, we know what God knows, he knows who we are. He places us where we are. And for those who are at least hearing what we're talking about right now at this moment, you're at very least called to the work and you can become his elect and his chosen people and enjoy those blessings and work out your own salvation to a point where you can truly enjoy those spiritual blessings until that day when God literally says to you, son or daughter, thou shalt be exalted. And as we do so, we will truly honor the gospel and the laws which God has given us um, to obey and abide by so that we can become like him. Amen to that. Well, um, yeah, I think that that wraps it up pretty well. Do you have any closing thoughts you wanted to say on top of that, Cade? Uh, no, I think that's about it for me. Okay. Well, uh, we're glad you guys listened along with us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we will have another episode out to you next week.